where do comics where do the roots of comics stand in regards to other forms of media okay I'd like to make a phone call um, now I you know I I where do the it's kind of a I, I guess I, I guess the way to put it is it's kind of one of those bastard art forms it's not a, a pure art form it's something that had a commercial construction and has several commercial constructions over the years not just uh, you know there's nothing really linear about it you can find roots or kind of sequential narratives all over the place but nothing um, as in the, you know as in the way that you can you, you kind of finally track down and can say that someone discovered America you can kind of say that comics were kind of invented you know there's, there's a commercial viability and a through line in the late 19th century on but you know all the antecedents the you know all the stuff that Scott and Jeet might be able to bring up the, all the smart stuff the the tapestries and the the German satirical newspaper cartoons and all that stuff you know can be seen as ad- antecedents but it just, uh, I think the commercial crystallization of the 19th century is probably what's important do I uh, see a difference between comic strips comic books and say editorial cartoons I do um, and I think pretty fa- fairly standard um, differences between all three of them you know one of them you know the comic book and comic strips have the similarity and that many of them count on some sort of uh, movement or some kind of uh, manipulation of time whereas an editorial cartoon being a static cartoon doesn't they all have in common of course the verbal visual blend as R.C. Harvey puts it but yeah no I think uh, I think in pretty obvious ways they're different forms and formats and even though they're related to one another don't you know all the kind of do different things what are the strengths of uh, early comics and some of the weaknesses I well you know the strength I think is that the dominant I, I would guess that the dominant art form that they were parroting or kind of taking from or kind of you know, it's very theatrical art form at the time, and it's very direct, very blunt kind of communication to the audience. And also, you know, those early, the another thing those early art form, the early comics did was that they were they were very colorful, mm-hmm. and I don't think that can be poo pooed to a certain extent. Just kind of that sheer visual thrill of of what that must have meant. I, you know, I, there was even, I think some of us that are in our 40s or even late 30s and older can remember a time when kind of visual, visual thrills were rare enough that when you caught something fantastic or kind of out of the world, out of this world, it must have been, it, it was still enough of a thrill because they were so rare. And to have that come along in a time of kind of, you know that when you didn't see things like that, you didn't see colors like that, you didn't see um, entertainment like that. Um, that must have been very. It must have been a kind of a visceral, direct connection between reader and, and object that must have just been wonderful. And I think you can even see echoes of that on up into the newspaper strips of the '30s and then the early comic books that play it, that that it played that kind of role. You know, also that there weren't any rules. And I think we're kind of in that point again where there are fewer rules than there are now. Yeah. But, you know, comics wasn't one certain thing. There was kind of this assault of, of visuals and this assault of styles that didn't 
that wasn't really um, no one had become so commercially successful that it dominated the approaches at least at that early time and that's why you can still look at some of the stuff that was done the better stuff done and it seems kind of thrilling and different and bizarre now so you know certainly had more of a wide open canvas back then how has that changed in time maybe like well I mean I think that you know just like anything when something becomes when there's a commercial standard you end up you know, people bring certain expectations and bring a certain um, bring a certain professionalism and a certain kind of um, knowledge as to how best to financially leverage a product, and it kind of dissuades innovation. Dissuade, you know, kind of discourages doing things outside of the things that we know are most profitable. And, yeah, I think it, it, in terms of, you know, the kind of printing that we get to, especially newspaper printing, is much different now and not as um, splendid as some of those early broadsheets. I, just, I was looking at that Rose O'Neill book that Trina Robbins put together, and the, the, there's that kind of basic realization that it's astonishing that they were sticking these magnificently illustrated <laughs> broadsheets into Sunday supplements. And now, you know, it's kind of like we get color... Lockhorns or color Howard Huge, and this very kind of simplistic color to it. But yeah, I mean, there's all that all that stuff that that you probably know about, which is just, you know the newspaper shrank and mm-hmm. and uh, shrank the size of strips and in the 50s or after the war, or, and, and which you know kind of became the standard in the early 50s. And so uh, there was no um, you just end up you end up chasing money to a certain extent, I think, and as commercial. As certain commercial forms become the standard, it kind of becomes more difficult to um, rip off of that. And that, that also has, you know, an effect content-wise with comics, too, in that you're constantly having to reinvent the wheel. People don't realize that, you know, there were comics for adults back in the day, you know, and, you know not only in the sense that soap opera, people were reading soap opera comics in the 30s, but there were also, you know, woodcut comics and things that certainly an adult could read but you know the people in the 19th up through the 1970s kind of felt they had to re to, to kind of reinvent the wheel and kind of you know from what was left there's very little cultural memory of that time so when did the differentiation come between it being a child's media and an adult's media or from an adult's to a child's media yeah, that's a good question i would imagine that it was i imagine that there's some truth in that was very popular with kids right from right from the beginning the first thing that I would know, I, I would guess, would be that in the 19-teens when there was a backlash in that way um, against comic strips, that they were too lurid, too, too dumb for children, and that at some point that became, they are for children, I think, just because of, you know, you, you end up starting to, you want to protect the children from something, and then uh, over time that becomes that the children are, are for something. It's certainly, I mean, certainly if you talk to those, the older gentlemen and and in the culture, they were very popular um, amongst kids, and very much in a way that is kind of their art form in a certain sense. But yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's the only the first formulation I've seen is like you kind of get that sense in those in the in the people that you know coming out against the kind of lurid or the luridness of of newspaper strips that they were too overheated and too adventurous that this was somehow a is it kind of a like childish medium. It's a represents a degradation. Yeah. Okay. I. Yeah, I would say. 
I would say that. And I would say after the war, you know, there's something that happened after the war that kind of culturally made that made that shift in ways that weren't that wasn't there before. Because there's certainly a a realization that people you know, that people read comics or people read read the comics. And it probably wasn't like the the leading edge of of uh, their interaction with art or high art. But I don't. There's something you know where you know you see people in the war that were reading. You know, certainly, like my aunt, who was an adult by the time World War II came around, was a big fan of Terry and the Pirates, like she was a soap opera. And while that probably wasn't considered the most mature thing she devoured in a day, it wasn't considered she wasn't considered backwards or ignorant for reading it. And I, I think there's something just about the, you know, maybe the maybe there's something in the commercial campaigns that TV ran. I'm not sure. Well, it's this is totally I don't know. I mean, Jeet would probably be the one I'd go to for that because I don't, <laughs> I don't really know the cultural historic. It, just an interesting note with that, with what you're saying about reading Terry and the Pirates. Like my grandma, she was from Nebraska, and one of the f- few things I can talk to her about since she used to read like Mutt and Jeff and uh, Crazy Cat. But yeah. culturally, like I remember, uh, like um, what was the the Coen Brothers movie with the Hick music? The Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? She hated the music of that because it represented a subculture of, like, the hicks from where she lived. Right. And how it's like the comics are okay. Yeah, I just don't think... I mean, there was certainly that perception, though. I know, I know talking to my father about those issues, when he was a boy, it wasn't considered, like, um... It wasn't considered, like, the most healthy thing that you did. But it wasn't considered, like, the almost sheer emotional retardation that it got considered by the by the late 60s early 70s in other words it wasn't the healthiest activity but it's not I don't know I don't like sports <laughs> talk radio or something it wasn't <laughs> like either something that not people would brag about to show their letters at a party but it was kind of realized that you know some people did it and enjoyed it and your pop might read the paper and enjoy it or your older sister might read the paper and enjoy it but it certainly wasn't number one on the list but it wasn't seen as just this abominable thing to have done and I you know I know when my dad would talk about it, he said that there was a certain audience or he claims that there was a certain audience for the comic strips among you know less literate folk and and that kind of thing so you know it's just one of those things where I think there's there is a reality there but it kind of gets crystallized in some way usually because of a commercial campaign or a commercial effort over time has there been a central use for comics a central use for comics yeah as 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 a product that people intake. Well, I mean, certainly the name. I mean, it kind of implies that it's a humorous. That there's a humorous endeavor involved there. They're there to make you laugh. Yeah. In a way that doesn't. Yeah, you know, I think Seth has talked about this. Where you know the 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 two kind of 20th century art forms are are movies and comics, and they both have ridiculous names, but at least. And th- that kind of gives you a clue as to what people thought of the, their essential heart. You know, comics were there to make you laugh, and movies were there so you could watch things move. And I, so I, yeah, I would guess that I would guess that the humor function is probably the one that dominates, especially if you count those first thirty, forty years, you know, those three comic book years. And then you know, there's the element of the thrill, and and certainly it's an educational f- found a, a function that they have that people have found surprisingly effective 
I think over the years. But yep. um, yeah, I just think they're you know kind of seen as funny items. There are two kind of major. I don't even want to use the word major. I'm trying to figure out how to kind of. There's there are two points in time I I see as comics kind of being seen in outside context. I'm talking like a greater kind of media type thing or um, cultural impact of some sort. Maybe, maybe there isn't. Maybe this is my own kind of thing. And uh, the first one is um, in the 50s, the Wortham's work on the juvenile delinquency. How uh, does that belong in the development of the medium? Well, I think, I think one of the interesting things about that is that it really creates a skill it kind of created a schism between comic strips and comic books and put real, some real nails in that coffin in terms of, um, you know, coloring it almost all the way back to the medium rather than, than the, the, kind, the nature of the enterprises involved. And uh, there was the NCS and the National Cartoonist Society did everything but throw, like, the comic book side of the industry under the bus, as the saying goes, <laughs> in order to kind of differentiate what they did, this kind of wholesome higher brow entertainment and these kind of you know crazy lurid comic books and I I, you know, I always think that that's you know kind of a split that ex- still exists today you know even you know, even five or six years ago I worked in comics I worked in comics at Fantagraphics for about six or seven years and after that I did a comic strip and the difference in people's reaction when what I was doing was amazing at that time, even like the early, in you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, it just, you know, comics were basically, like I just said, I was working in dwarf porn or something, whereas working in a comic strip, that was understood, you know, it was respectable. That was something you could do, and I, I always think that that kind of, kind of crystallized at that point. Um, you know, it's a central, a lot of, it's also, it's a central myth for a lot of people, I think, the kind of uh, comics as this put upon um, you know people interpret that that separate myth you know like in other words if you were to sit down and have coffee with comics like some you know entity called comics and he was to tell you were on a date with comics and you you had that long discussion about the great events in your life and the life changing events you know and the kind of ramble that sometimes happens at the end of a, a long conversation between two people that don't know each other you'd probably not say bring up the the worth of hearings a lot I mean it really is kind of like the central it, it, depending on how you interpret it you interpret it as this kind of you know comics as this lurid awful thing comics as this art form that got kneecapped by these horrible government people the big comics companies ganging up on on uh, Mr. Gaines and, and EC you know, there's all sorts of kind of resonant material there the kind of story of comics that all kind of come out of that that time, uh, you know, that or that event. You know, for the comics itself, I'm not sure. You know, over time, if that's uh, going to end up being as important as it seems to those of us that kind of grew up chafing against the code. Mm-hmm. Those of us that grew up knowing Crumb. Yeah, kind of. You know, and where that was kind of different because of what. I don't know. There was that, you know, I think like the 70s and stuff, uh, and the way that affected the other part of comics, you know, there was always this expectation, you know, if only we could have the freedom to do what we wanted. 
And in a way, kind of Crumb kind of spoke against that because Crumb just kind of ignored the comics code. Whereas there was this commercial side of comics that was always kind of, you know, complaining that they were under the yoke of whatever, you know, they couldn't show, you know, Batman, I don't know, shooting up or something. And, and this <laughs> was. Uh, this well, was, that, uh, they, that didn't stop. You know, like there was still, like there was still some sort of slavery involved, you know, yeah. in, in doing kind of creative slavery involved. Whereas Crumb just, in, you know, and Wilson and all those guys just kind of, you know, ignored the code, made fun of the code, um, kind of put the, you know, EC comics up on a on a platform that I'm not sure they'd be on without the code. It's it's a weird thing. Do you think it's interesting that it took an English writer to kind of make the code not the entity it once was? How do you mean? Which, which English writer? Alan Moore. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, you know? <sighs> yeah. I mean, that is kind of interesting. Like, really, after his Swamp Thing, or during his Swamp Thing run, you know, it's like a certain point, there's no code on the cover anymore. Did that really matter anymore? And nothing really happened. Nothing really shook the skies out. I mean, yeah, it's not. It's never quite that simple, but it's that's really, I think you're right in that Moore's kind of matter-of-fact approach to a lot of things um, changed changed at least commercial comics in a, in a major fashion he probably has never been given credit all the, all the credit he deserves yeah. you know and I I always kind of saw that as kind of you know there's a uh, thing I've always liked about him is there was kind of a confidence to him where he didn't you know he could he would write these. He would write in the you know commercial form is kind of available to him, but there weren't any. There wasn't one favored over the others. You know, I thought it was important, kind of, that he made his name running horror comics first, or kind of bringing back horror comics a bit, and then kind of made his name bigger by doing you know kind of applying some of these that same attention to theme and detail to superheroes. Well, or if he had come out of superheroes and then gone into horror, that might not have been as interesting. And I don't even... I, I, I personally have my own issues with the whole term of horror to describe as comics. Right. Because, I mean, what Bissette did afterwards was definitely horror comics with Taboo, things like that. But the Swamp Thing stuff, I don't find that horror-esque, for lack of a better term. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, you could argue that. I don't know. I'd have to sit down and have to take a look at them structure-wise again. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly horror elements to them, both the obvious and then, you know, he has those big scary moments that you kind of see in horror films now, those kind of lurid, um, you know, surprise, shock turns. There's certainly um, kind of a visual language and a language that he communicates in that doesn't, that wouldn't really fit into superhero comics as well. I mean, like like the bug climbing down the guy's throat, or the um, arcane asking how many days he had been in hell. Yeah, there's well, kind of right. there's kind of those moments that that use horror iconography, but I don't know. You know, structurally, it might just be another superhero comic. And certainly, there are superhero books or you know adventure books that elements to it all. No, but uh, yeah, I always kind of thought that he was. And uh, you know, again, I, got, I always think that, that he kind of he was kind of bigger than the genres in which he worked, and mm-hmm. certainly bigger than the 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 companies for which he worked. 
you know, Alan Moore's cool because he's Alan Moore, whereas Stan Lee is cool because of Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense. I mean, it's, his yes. celebrity was different. Yeah. I mean, you were looking for the Alan Moore approach. Yeah. And yeah. so, I don't know, kind of the first one to get there on, not to kind of break that creator paradigm and, you know, for and to, and to be judged on kind of a literary paradigm or quality yeah. paradigm or quality set of standards. I'll completely agree with that. The other media thing, which is something you've been kind of covering ad nauseum, uh, not to degrade all the coverage you're doing, um, <laughs> is the Muhammad comics controversy, quote, oh, unquote. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's an incident among cartoonists and those in the cartooning world that kind of groan and roll their eyes at. And... Um, which is interesting in itself is the reaction that people have. Like, they, this specific, like, Joe Sacco, I asked him about it, and I got the same uh, response. Um, so my question is <laughs> specifically, um, which is not the question I asked Joe because this was when I interviewed him, what, two years ago or something? Yeah, sure. Um, is, is this an isolated incident, or does it hold a place in the greater scope of the medium? I think it does, and I, you know what I think from a oh, how to answer that question. That there's a okay. I have a kind of a different point of view about the Muhammad cartoons than a lot of people do. In that I very, I am very, I am equally critical of the, the clerics that promoted the cartoon and used it to create the riots. But I'm also equally critical of the publishing move. That the that the newspaper made mm -hmm. the, the the stunt aspect of it, and I want is it a big thing in the history of cartooning? Sure, because it's the biggest story that has that's ever happened where people died that has as its core root cartoons and their ability. And I think it, uh, I remember at the time what it reminded people of, or what, what people were kind of the learning curve for a lot of people was just finding out how important cartoon iconography was as a tool and as a communicative tool in the newspapers all over Africa and the Middle East stretching into the, the near, you know, all the way over to Pakistan, I guess. And that you had all of these, that it was, you know, that it was something that anyone would get upset about, first of all, that, that these matter and that this could be communicated to, in, to people in that way. I guess I see it more as a journalism story. The more interesting aspects of it are the journalism aspects of it. But the cartooning itself was, yeah. I mean, they weren't very good cartoons, as Art Spiegelman points out um, a lot. You know, except maybe that bomb in the turban cartoon. That's kind of a cool-looking cartoon. I like the one with the, uh, the cartoonist looking over his shoulder. Yeah, no, that's cute. <laughs> that's a cute cartoon. You're right. I don't forget which one. Who did that one? A name I could not pronounce. Yeah, but you know, I. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting in all the standard ways it would be interesting, but it. Not, I, I, I might think of it more of a, as a journalism story. I mean, the thing that was interesting to me was just how many people bailed on reproducing them and the kind of weird reasons they gave why, and people were kind of genuinely scared and not sure that they needed to be and. People are uh, scared to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, uh, the, the interesting thing that, that a lot of people don't consider is just the fact that, you know, there's that ironic 
um, distinction. You know, it's like people are dying over cartoons. Yeah. You know, that kind of drives a lot of the interest to it. Whereas I don't think that there's that element to say the, I don't know, the pictures of Muslim prisoners being tortured or something. No one's surprised. Like photographs, people are dismayed over photographs. Well, of course there are. You know, and then there's that element in comics where there's this kind of like, um, wackiness, the irony to it, you know, this, there are cartoons, and yet people are dying, you know, imagine that. Now, that guy went to jail for cartoons. So there's, it kind of shows you that in a broader scale, there's still the percep- there's still that cultural perception of comics as being innocuous and for kids. Yeah, I guess that could be kind of specified with uh, that current case, the, was it Handley? Sure. Sure. Where his lawyer kind of backed out because they didn't think that. I mean, there is that element in comics a lot. There's that. Uh, there's a very comics are very conservative. I mean, comics people are very conservative, so you always see those elements kind of break out. But yeah, there's always that thought in the in the obscenity cases that as soon as you that the baseline is you know if not childish, then not bizarre, not unacceptable, and that if you if you show someone there's an extra cultural kick for doing something that's kind of sick or, or off the cultural norms in comics form because comics form is, is uh, still seen as innocuous in some way. That people's gut reaction is different than than uh, than than their considered reaction. You know, I can you can talk through anybody and say, you know, there's you know, you can explain that, you know, in a couple of minutes you can explain to someone and get their heads to wrap around the idea of comics that adults read, you know, by describing Doonesbury, is what I used to use all the time back in the 90s when no one really understood what I was doing out in Seattle. And it's like, well, you know, Doonesbury is different than Beetle Bailey. And they go, yeah. And it's like, well, there are comic books that are different than the other comic books in that same way. Yeah. And they go, okay. So, you know, they kind of, but, you know, but then, you know, you whip out the, what was the example, you know, of Homer Simpson having sex with Lisa Simpson? And, and <laughs> if people's first reactions are just going to be, you know, that's abominable. You know, that's not satire. That's just horrifying. And that's, not, you know, that's a discussion that, you know, you know it goes well back to a cultural notion that, you know, our country's been kind of broken in half since the 60s. And Speaking specifically. continue to fight those cultural wars. And, you know, Joe Blow by Robert Crumb is still as upsetting if not more upsetting than anything we see today, and um, that, that you know, there's a certain mindset that's kind of stuck in place, and a certain mindset that's kind of left that place now for 40, 50 years. And that's specific to the United States. Uh, yeah, you know, more it's more specific to the United States, I think, for sure. I'm not really up on obscenity trials elsewhere or anything like that. I, really I, uh, much. I mean, certainly there's. Um, you know, from what I've seen of you know what I see of international editorial cartoons, there's there's not a luridness to them, but they're cer- they're certainly very you know can be very violent and very sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, that you know Jacob Zuma and Zapiro, is a the South African cartoonist. I mean, he has a he's put a he recently took it off as kind of a political gesture, but he would portray uh, Jacob Zuma the. South African president with a shower head on his head because he had once said that he had showered after having sex to rid himself of AIDS. 
And that's about as brutal of this, like, uh. editorial cartoon. Can you imagine if someone did that here? You know, like, something that nasty and kind of always drew, you know, this, you know? It would be like if someone, you know, it was basically like if, if you know, someone always drew Bill Clinton after a certain point with his zipper open. Yeah. And his stuff out. And it, but it'd be so the, s- the same part that there's a certain horridness of having that as a statement of, you know, it's not like Bill Clinton went out and said, I had sex with her because it was, you know, good for my constitution. You know, this guy went out and said that the shower to get rid of the AIDS. I mean, that's. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I, I'm the more than like the severity, the severity of the image. And the way people are able to process that. Whereas I think if we did that here, you know, people here get upset. There's more of a, you know, it's more, more of a jostling in American culture for the approval of the bulk of what's being represented in the culture, I think. Whereas, you know, there's some sort of, every time there's a bad thing, it's this kind of general conspiracy and hatred for you and what re- you represent. And so I can't imagine if something as mean as the shower head had appeared with, <coughs> you know, Sarah Palin or someone yeah. that... Sarah Palin always Because certainly, happened. like, you know, people are going over with a fine-tooth comb, those you know, represent, representations of Palin or, or Obama to look for yeah. things to be upset about. Whereas I think there's more of a gloves-off, you know, you can get away with just, like, the nastiest drawings on, on the face of the planet Earth. My just because the level of political discourse is different. My favorite uh, kind of Eddie Campbell had this great example. I was asking about the the controversy aspect, and he said in Australia, the most recent controversy with comic strips was because uh, someone do drew the uh, prime minister in Tintin style as Tintin. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. And and he got in trouble not for anything in the strip, but uh, from a commercial aspect, which I found was very fascinating is you know the yeah the state being upset god forbid yeah it's weird it's weird what i don't you know and editorial cartooning is so weird too because that whole that whole framework is just collapsed right underneath the feet of all those people and you have a lot of younger cartoonists that are out there that are really mean and kind of in your face <laughs> compared to the previous generation but you know i don't know any of them have a commercial foothold you know i'm not even sure even if Ted Rawl could be said to be like a functioning editorial cartoonist the way that uh, Steve um, Steve Sack is or well, um, I don't think Tom Tolles is. I don't think Ted Rawl's dynamic enough. Yeah, but I'm, just saying, I'm, just, I'm not sure he has a commercial foothold enough so that he could be considered like part of that. I mean, he, he, if he even works that same territory, you know, uh, there's a, you know, if he's not on the, if he's really on the circuit, like, the, you know, back in the, in the days where they had a, a cocktail circuit for stand-up comedians. You know, I just get, you know, all these guys, are, you know, are, are these guys, like, in the lower level of that, or are they just standing out in the street corner hissing nasty things? Yeah. So, you know, that's a weird, that's a weird industry. Um, and certainly, you know, certainly, certainly the good ones in that industry are still capable of being, you know, Pat Olfant is really mean, and, and Tom Holes, Tolles is, you know, Pat Olfant just seems to get away with it because he's much older than everybody else, and he draws beautifully. <laughs> so it's just kind of like yeah, I don't, he t- intimidates everyone into accepting his his blunt um, kind of attacks. It's like uh, Ralph Steadman's uh, drawing of uh, Nixon's ass talking to the microphones. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's Ralph Steadman, so of course he can drop well, that. You know, if you can if you can nail that one mean image to sit out, probably like David Levine's great image of I think it's Levine or Levine of the um, Kissinger screwing the world. Or who's it with the uh, LBJ with the uh, Vietnam tie? Yeah. Yeah, so if you can get that one image. I mean, like one of my favorite Tom Tolls cartoons is one of, with a regional issue where he was, they were debating whether or not to do a historical park, a Disney historical park, and, you know, which would have Disney characters walking us through history. And he drew the, he did a redrawing of the kids running away from Napalm, that famous picture, and he put Goofy. <laughs> In the middle of it, and it was it was so game over after that. I mean, you can't come back from that. And I laugh every time I see the cartoon. But yeah, I mean, there's that one searing kind of like moment. But I don't know if anyone could like function like that all the time at one of those papers, no. even, or if they would just you be get work. Yeah, if it would just be too hot for these papers to handle now. No. So it's crazy. I don't even know how that field works anymore. Reminds me of like. Uh the uh, Ron English's version of uh, Guernica, where he does them with like Simpsons characters, and <laughs> yeah, characters, sure. and yeah, so yeah. Um, I'm 